And now this is going to be a fascinating conversation here. Um, Kurt Oriol, um, Peter and I have spent a great deal of time in Spain, and uh, we're big fans of Iberico anyhow. Um, but you have a, a company called Campo Grande, and uh, you have an incredible operation and assortment of cuts and, and opportunities for online purchasing. Um, I'm going to have you tell us about that. First of all, why were you – are you Spanish or of Spanish descent? Yes, yes, yes. Okay, so that's what your your initial interest was because of your background. Yeah, I mean, my, my yeah, my family lives in Madrid. I was I was born in New York, but I grew up uh, in Madrid, and I've just been between the U.S. and Spain since I was born. Okay, very good. And you're bi- uh, you're bilingual, with a, you know, to a fault. We, correct. We, we, yes. We, we would we would never have guessed. <laughs> yeah, it, it, the bilinguality. Well, my and my mother's side is actually Turkish, so I'm trilingual, which causes a very large identity crisis in me. <laughs> <laughs> Turkish, no less, huh? No, that's a whole other yeah. story. How does how does yep. the, somebody from Turkey end up in Spain and? And then end up in, in New York, or where, where Where did you come to yeah. the States? We're going to need another podcast for that. <laughs> <laughs> my parents met in New York, and then they moved to Madrid, like, uh, back, my father back, my mother there, uh, I don't know, 20 years ago-ish, or 15. And then I uh-huh. was born in New York, moved to Madrid when we all moved. I was 9, 10, and then I moved back for university uh, to the U.S., and I've been here ever since. Okay, Okay, and in the meantime, you fell in love with Spanish food, which is not surprising. Uh, We love Spanish food also, and it's very varied. I mean, if you all different parts of Spain, one to to the next. Uh, So, yeah. So, um, but now, we received a box of... um, of, of pork from your company, Campo Grande. And I truly was so impressed because usually you look at pork that we get in the States and it looks like white plastic. <laughs> <laughs> but yours chicken. is, it, well, it's the other white meat, they say, but it doesn't yeah. have any flavor. So, but, we probably, we, we probably should like uh, know that we spent 10 days over Christmas one year in, in Spain because we thought it was such a wonderful place to be. And we, and we, and we keep on going back to Barcelona. Oh, oh yeah, wonderful. Barcelona is my favorite city. I mean, we have friends in, um, where is it now, in the south? Nerja. Nerja. Nerja, yeah. Yeah, uh, but most of, I mean, they're, they're originally Swedes. And Swedish, and most of their friends are Swedes. <laughs> so that's what you hear when you're in Nerha. It's mm-hmm. interesting. So, um, you know, that's a whole other story. But tell us about what got you interested in setting up a company to deal with Iberica. 
And you also, so, I'm a little bit confused, but you also have, I mean, I'm a big fan of all manner of Spanish food, including the tin fish and stuff like this, uh, mm-hmm. the jarred items. I mean, I love all that mm-hmm. stuff. But, I mean, in the brochure that came with our sample of pork, you also do fish, which had me a little confused. So uh, Spain is still one of the massively undiscovered jewels of food and culture in Europe from the American perspective, uh, probably because there just hasn't been a lot of Spanish influence like there has French and Italian in the U.S., which we can get into multiple conversations about just in terms of how many uh, immigrants came in in the 20th century from Italy versus Spain. But, you know, from us growing up, uh, obviously, you know, family from Spain, it was always normal to have all of these millions of different uh, food products that, you know, are eaten in Spain and enjoyed on a daily basis. But in the U.S., they're pretty much still very, by and large, unknown. And so that the, 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 the typical kind of expat Spaniard coming to the U.S. that is always longing to be placed in the right vision of how Americans perceive France and Italy um, is a huge frustration for Spaniards everywhere. And so, yeah, from, yeah, and so from my perspective, being, you know, Spanish-American or American-Spaniard or, or whatever, is kind of... I had that same frustration in telling Americans, like, this is jamón ibérico, it's not prosciutto, it's not bacon, you know, ibérico <laughs> pork is not the same thing that you'll find in the supermarket. This is an eye-opening, breathtaking experience that you've never tried before. And everybody was like, sure, sure, good, cool story, buddy, kind of. And so all that frustration led to, you know, just this kind of mission to bridge this cultural and culinary gap that is that divides I think Spain and the most of the English speaking uh, you know world, but primarily the U.S. Just because you know England is closer to Spain and has a lot more access to it, um, and so that's kind of what the the you know conceptual thesis or idea behind this was. And then to find the kind of flagship kind of star product leader that Spain has been as known for all around the world. Um, you know, outside of the more traditional products like wine or olive oil, for me was um, was Iberico, and and that um, I mean it's just so different and so unique and so much around it that has that of the story that has not been properly told in the U.S., um, which is why I think uh, it was kind of the obvious choice to start, and that's why we you know created a bunch of communication and language around that product specifically for Campo Grande and why it's, for me and for a lot of Spaniards, considered the Wagyu of pork because of the similar texture, well, yeah, eating I think quality, that, flavor. That, that, I mean, even visually, it looks more like, um, less like um, the pork we get here and, and more, more like the Wagyu. Exactly. And yeah, that's exactly right. And this just in the US American consumers are very much uh, influenced by, you know, what's being told uh, on on these, you know, traditional food categories, whether it's beef, chicken, pork, uh, tomato sauce, whatever it is, um, is just the thing that you know. And so 
to have a transformation of what pork should be in the eyes of Americans is hard to digest because it was just, you have to overcook it because if not, you'll die from trichinosis and there's no flavor in it because all the product, all the pigs have been hyper-industrially bred to breed uh, for, for yield, muscle yield and not flavor. And when you, you know, walk into this like really dark red hue with, with these streaks of marbling on it, you're like, uh, holy freaking hell, I cannot yeah. believe this is pork. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I don't know if I can exactly. curse on this. <laughs> no, no, hold on a minute. Let's, let's, let's not leave this particular topic before, before we cover a definition like where does America come from and, and why, why is it when it's farmed properly so delightful to eat? So there's, a, there's the three main aspects of, of Iberico is, um, is genetics, um, feeding, and, and, um, and uh, let's call it nurturing or, or farming. So from a genetics perspective, this is still one of the last, I would say, preserved ancient breeds that has not been industrialized and bred for yield. Um, and it's kind of within the mentality of Spain culture is that everything is still traditional, old world. You know, you have hanging a ham for four years to dry cure is absolutely <laughs> unthinkable in the United States, right? It's just absurd. We did go to the Museum of, of Hamon. Yeah, we did. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, our, yeah, that's, our, uh, our pilgrimage was almost entirely complete. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, there you go. So that, I mean, and I'd say that that's, that might even be just step one. Um, but uh, so, so genetics is a huge important aspect of it just because and not only the things I mentioned, but as well that this breed metabolizes fat intramuscularly. And that goes to the second topic, which is the feed. So all, let's call it, divide animals into monogastric and ruminants. Ruminants can eat, can digest yeah. grass like cows and goats, uh, and, and monogastric are like human um, digestive system, which is essentially just uh, pork and chicken. And so all monogastric animals, or 99% of monogastric uh, livestock in the United States, is fed a corn-based diet. And corn is just an absolute killer of health yeah. for the animal uh, and for the people eating it, because it's very high in unhealthy PUFA uh, fats, which is a particularly unhealthy and oxidizing and inflammatory for, for the animal and for the people eating it, and for the flavor. And so Iberico's feed is based way far away or moves away from uh, from this type of feed. It's, it's based more on whole cereal grain like barley, wheat, oats, and nutty-based stuff like sunflower, acorn, obviously, and things like yeah, that well, that they, extremely elevated. Don't they sort of let them loose in the acorn um, tree, um, woodsy setting to eat at, at their will, right? Correct, correct. And that yeah. that particularly is a is is a seasonal item. Uh, not 100% of Iberico do that, but but even then, 100% of Iberico are not fed a corn-based diet, which is kind of the fundamentals of building the flavor profile and a healthier animal as well. Yeah, so um, we followed the efforts of uh, Jose Andres to get the uh, hormone, uh, the Verico um, hormone, through U.S. customs. And mm -hmm. it, it, part of that 
issue was you couldn't have the feet on it. I mean, it's some kind of crazy system. Yeah. But how yeah, does yeah, your yeah. product differ from the Hamon that uh, that well, his company hold on sells? A there's, there's a little bit of additional information to be to be put in there because the which well, well I've lost I've lost my I've lost my train of thought. Oh no, your your yeah your no your your initial question of of my answer of what makes Iberico special. We're talking about the breed, the feed, and and how it's rated. Oh okay, no, I, wa- I wanted to go back on the on the breed. Okay. Now, mm-hmm. is it, is Iberico pork that you produce? Is it is it similar to what travels the world as a breed called Man- Mangalista? No. No, yeah, Mangalisa is originated in in Eastern Europe, I believe. Yeah, Hungary. that's I was going to say. That's not even Spanish. It's um, yeah. but the but they they landed a bunch of them on this island off the coast of South Carolina, and so you find that in restaurants. And I guess because of the name, people think of it as a Spanish breed. Yeah, um, I'm not sure. Okay. Anyhow, so. All right, so you one obvious difference um, with with your product as opposed to uh, uh, the uh, how they handle hamon is the processing of it, and hanging it, and so forth, right? Uh huh. Yep. So when you break down, and I mean, I can go as detailed as you want here, but essentially, there's a very fundamental difference in how the animals are broken down and all the parts that are saved because an Iberico pig that's raised to 350 pounds and is a year old is very different than a very quickly developed six-month-old pig in the U.S. that's fed corn to accelerate its growth. So once you have the... Not only that, but they cut their tails off. So because in, in close confinement, the way they handle these poor pigs, um, they tend to bite each other's tails. I thought that was so yeah. painful to hear about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so that, um, and so what? So you're talking about a more mature animal, longer muscle development, healthier, which also means better flavor. Um, it's broken down to kind of honor the the animal in a much better way, in in the sense of extracting a lot more muscle cuts because the meat is so great that you can create all these different individual steaks out of the pig and not only throw it into the, you know, bacon, sausage, and pork chops uh, usage. So we've got, on our website, we have uh, an assortment of 12 different fresh Iberico cuts, and we should have an extra, another three, I think, coming on in the next couple months. So we should be at a total of 15 different um, fresh Iberico cuts when it's all said and done. And all of these are extracted uh, hand butchery, uh, hand butchery and, and seam cutting. So you're cutting at the natural uh, seam between the whole muscles versus taking an electric chainsaw and just chopping it down the middle and in the large quarters that are usually done in more industrial uh, pork production. Sweet, sweet, a quick, um, quick, quick, quick note from me before before I forget one more time because I forget things all the time. The I, I just did it again. No, you did it again. 
the website. Yeah. Go ahead. Something about the uh, the, the different cuts? Yeah. I wish I could remember what Yeah. I mean, on your website, there's a lot of information about the different cuts, where they come from, from the animal, mm-hmm. and, and how to handle it. The thing that I noted the most was that, aside from the fact that there are cuts that don't resemble anything that I know about much, um, is the short how short the cooking times are. That's a great, great, <clears throat> great point. So one of the things that we always get in the U.S. Um, in terms of pushback is like, you know, I can't believe you're doing this medium rare. Oh, my God, oh, my God, this is insane. And at the end of the day, like, once you realize, like, all of the effort that's put into the breed, feed, and, and raising practices of these animals, um, you are in basic, basic terms supposed to just treat it like a Wagyu steak. High heat, cast iron, salt and pepper should be the first way to experience uh, Iberico pork steaks, the Abanico your defrosting, or any of the other fresh meat cuts we have before getting into marinades, sauces, etc., so that you can kind of understand how this super nutty umami fat that is, you know, based on nuts and different high-value feeds versus a corn-based diet completely changes the flavor and people's concepts of what pork really should taste like. Now, now I remember what it was like. You, you remember that guy we interviewed, sweetheart, who got a scholarship to, to study the raising of pork in Spain? Mm, no, I remember and, that and one. He, and, he, he, and he told us the story... You can verify whether it's typical or not. But basically, they, they used to have itinerant butchers, if you like, who would go from village to village and, and do, the, do the breaking down of the pig the way that the people wanted it, but they didn't have to actually know how to do it. All they had to do was probably stand and watch. That makes a lot of sense because it's a really high-value skill. This is, well, I mean, we used to have a lot of, uh, I remember when we used to have a DC, the, the truck that came around and sharpened our knives, if you remember. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's sort of a different era. Um, it, it, you have one large cut that I wanted to ask you about. It's, it's like, looks like a standing rib roast, but it's pork. Ribs. Uh, which one? Um, it's like the four rib rack. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I that's I mean that's rack. essentially the you know the 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 pork chop uh, rack, uh, but we keep them, uh, you know, without cutting the individual pork chops. So you can either roast the whole thing uh, as a rib roast with the four pork chops all together, or you can yeah. cut you know. Two thick double cuts or four individual pork chops. Now, what do you think is the best way to do it? Because we'll have to figure out how to, what to do with it. For me personally, I would recommend doing maybe uh, cut ha- cut it in half. So you have one uh, like double thick pork chop, and then the other double cut. Cut that in half, so you, you can taste two individual pork chops in a high heat cast iron 
uh, way, and then the other thick one, maybe do it uh, like a mini roast in the oven, and then you can kind of compare both ways. Hmm. Yeah, is it, is it cooks so, I mean, it's hard to believe it can cook so fast. Is that because the um, the fat is rendered so quickly? Great point. So the fat in Iberico, because it's not uh, because it's higher in in this monounsaturated fat, oleic acid, which is the same oh, yeah. fat found in olive oil, um, it great. has a lower melting point. Right. Exactly. Well, so that's it good to know. That's healthy then. Yeah. Exactly. So the high high oleic fat and low linoleic fat uh, by removing corn essentially creates one of the healthiest fat profiles you can consume in meat. Well, I mean, I, I, why it's taken so long for us to be aware of this? We, I mean, we're at this podcast, we're in our 20th year almost. This <laughs> is the first time anybody sent me any information about this. Yeah, it's, it, uh, it's, again, it's just a thing that is just so still so much to educate, uh, uh, transmit all about this this food culture, and and we're literally just talking about our flagship, right, right for right now, which is the Iberico. But there's so many other types of food categories and products in Spain that are still completely undiscovered that hopefully we'll get to one day. So you're going to explain, expand in that direction. You're going to, you're starting with the Iberico, but you're, you're I mean, I, on one of your brochures, you're talking about the fish. Yeah, we, right. we have fish online now. Yeah, and, and how is that different? I mean, at, at the end of the day, there are breeds that are caught in the Mediterranean and in the um, northern Bay of Biscay, uh, which are different breeds of fish than in the Pacific and the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. I think they taste better, they're juicier, but fish is very hard in the United States just because consumption is so, so low that, um, you know, if you're talking about, like, consumption annually per capita, I mean, beef and pork might be at, like, 50, 60 pounds per person per year, and fish is, like, 10. Um, in our house. So fish is, <laughs> we, yeah. we probably eat more fish than meat, actually. But well, anyhow, but, yeah. um, what is that thing we like, the escort, what was that? Espardenius. Espardenius. <laughs> Do <laughs> you know about Espardenius? No. It's wonderful. It, it's, it's one of those, just like portobello mushrooms, it's one of those uh, PR uh, triumphs, um, success stories, is that there is this, uh, oh, I never got clear on what part of this fish uh, the, the Espardenius was, but it's the fishermen used to either eat it themselves or throw it away. It's junk fish, you know. Until somebody featured it in a, in a public relations campaign and, and gave it a name and it became this great expensive fish <laughs> that's almost impossible to lay hands on. Well, and I love it. Absolutely love it. People, so. people used to describe it for us in Spain as sea cucumbers. Yeah, sea cucumbers, yeah. which it's not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I know what this is. Yeah. yeah but, uh, you, 
Now, were you in the food business before this, before your fascination with Spanish food products? Not really. I mean, my family um, had a uh, a ranch in southern Spain with these pigs, but I really just came into this from a from a cultural and motivation uh, background, or or, or kind of. Um, Culture, like motivated by the culture and just from the consumer side of things versus, you know, being in the food industry. Uh-huh. Well, now you said you were, you were not in the food industry, nothing. No, no, I, w- I was not. I was not. I, I just came into this more from a, I know what the products are. I love them. Uh, we have partners in the industry that are helping us with, with sourcing and stuff like that. But um, I came into it from more of like a, I really want to educate um, Americans about this amazing stuff in Spain and kind of bridge the, the communication gap uh, culturally. Mm-hmm. Let, me, let me ask another dumb question. My, my mother was unusual as far as American cooking is concerned, but she, she liked to cook everything that had a fat in it with lard. Now, mm-hmm. is, is, is lard not not the fat that comes from pigs? Correct, yes. I mean, lard is basically you take the fat and you render it down, and then I think you separate part of it, and then once it solidifies back up again, it's it's cooking lard, and in beef, you, in, you call it tallow. Got it. Yeah, well, so for our meat... meat yeah, in uh, parts of Italy, especially the Marble Quarry regions of, um, of Northwest Italy, and around. Um, yeah, I mean, lardo is like a standard product, but it's all seasoned up. It's it's aged and seasoned and and so forth. Right. So lardo is 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 actually the the thick back fat slabs that are dry cured with seasoning, and then you cut yeah. that in thin. Uh, so lardo, the Italian charcuterie lardo, is different than just lard, which is which is exactly. rendered uh, for cooking. And so yeah, that's what I was uh, about to say. Yeah. I mean, that's what I wanted yeah. to point out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Your mother would no more. She no more would eat lardo. <laughs> she might cook with lard, but and make it in her pie crust. But she she wouldn't. Uh, you heard the expression when pigs could fly. Well, that would be about right with your mother in lardo. <laughs> so yeah. But so the lard is mother. that's a great that's a great point. So lard is um for, so because our our pork has that beautiful fat on it. We recommend when you're cooking it when you when you um do the remaining cuts you have is just cut off a little piece of the fat trimmings from the meat itself and use that in the pan to render down and don't use any cooking oils. Oh, that's interesting to know. Okay. All right. I mean, all these recipes on your website call for all kinds of additive things like rosemary, um, and what was some, I was looking up the um, abanico um, and had cherry tomatoes, provolone, and rosemary, I think, in it. And I was afraid to do that for fear that I wouldn't taste the actual Iberico. 
Yeah, I wouldn't. I, I, I agree. I would not recommend doing that as your first ever experience. And maybe we should. Okay, make so that what should we do clear. with this thing with sod for us to eat tonight? We're Just going to salt and pepper and and high heat uh, sear on cast iron. Zero cooking oil. Just use its own fat first right. to to grease the pan. And and it said the recipe three minutes per side. Is that true? I mean, it really depends on, like, the exact piece and the exact thickness, but I would just, you know, if personally, I would go for medium rare, whatever that is, depending on your pan and the amount of fire that your 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 stove, would, you know, is it produces on max. Uh-huh. I mean, you put it on top of the stove. We could, we could do it on, on stove top in a cast iron pan. That would yeah. be what yes. you would suggest. Yes. Yes. With no lard, I mean, no fat in it at all, just the straight fat from the meat itself. Yes. Right. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, sounds good. Um, wherever are you going to – first of all, we have everybody listening out there uh, drooling over this new experience. So you better tell us a little bit about how they can get some. Uh, your website, you can order it right off the website, right? Yes, right off the website, you can go to the general shop section and you can choose either a, a kind of pre-made kit that, that we have with our selection. We have two different ones, which is one of the ones you received, or uh, you can make a custom order with, with your favorite ones. So people usually go for one of the sampler packs first, and then they pick their favorite ones in a custom box after. Good. And, and you have a special thing going in case somebody wants to start in experiencing this. Uh, it's called Next Order 20. Is that, what's that? Uh, I think the best way would probably be to go to our our page for somebody who's never tried this before, which is try, T-R-Y, Dot eatcampogrande.com, and that will give you kind of an introductory discount. And we believe in the product so much that there's a money-back guarantee if you don't like it um, with a discount already auto-applied to it. Okay, let me get that straight. It's tryeatcampogrande.com. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're just missing the dot. So try dot eatcampograndid.com. Okay, and and that's there's no that's the URL. Correct. Okay, that's interesting. Well, I mean, I I really feel like I've learned a lot, but I feel I could talk to you for another couple of hours learning more about this. It's um, a whole new world out there of, of pork, and you know, I'm I, as you expand your product line, I'd love to be kept informed of that because it's, um, I, I mean, I just, I love the Spanish, Spanish stuff. And we, it depends on where you are in Spain, too. I mean, that's the other thing that's so interesting about it. Shall, shall, oh, you can just, we, yeah. Shall we send Kurt our butcher? Strip, strip district meats, and the owner's name is Ray. I don't know his last name. Oh, I don't know. How, how do you get a butcher to uh, import I mean, who, who, I meant to ask you that. Who is your market? Uh, in the U.S., our, I mean, the end consumers are 
pretty much anybody who likes good meat, <laughs> which is, as you can imagine, a lot of people um, that, you know, people that like Wagyu and people who like cooking at home. Our demographic does skew a little bit older um, because it is made for, you know, people that like, you know, uh, home cooks. Um, and because and it's red meat... Let's be clear, it's also not cheap. <laughs> it definitely not. No, it's not cheap. And, and, mm-hmm. But that's reflective also of, of how involved it is producing it. So... Right. Um, you can buy commodity pork for five bucks a pound. You can buy Wagyu at a hundred dollars a pound. Um, you know, and there's a lot of things in between. Right. And uh, I always faced with that the other white meat. I always used to apologize if I was feeding somebody to say pork needs a lot of help. But your pork okay. looks like it doesn't need a lot of help, and we're going to test that out this evening for dinner. Uh, Kurt, keep us posted of what other products you're going to be getting too. Yeah, we hopefully will will be. Uh, we haven't really announced this yet, but we'll we'll hopefully have our uh, charcuterie four different uh, cured products um, hopefully launched before Christmas so that people can order it for the holidays. Oh, that sounds delicious. Yeah. Um, the the other thing is. Um, that I wanted to ask you about this was um, I wanted to make sure everybody knows that it's going to come. I'm assuming mine came frozen. It's always going to come frozen, right? Yes, we, it, it'll arrive frozen and it's shipped with with dry ice. Okay. So anyhow, so but people have to make allowance, allowances in terms of what when they're going to cook it. When in terms of when it comes, you have to th- you suggest thawing it. In the refrigerator overnight. Yes, definitely. Well, we started we started this morning, so so we so we put it in the cold we'll put water. Put it in bag. cold water. That's it's okay. It's fine. Yeah, it'll be fine. Well, yeah, I have to drop you a note and let you know what I think when I when we sample it. Please, um, it, please do. Send me a picture. Oh yeah, I, I, I'm just so amazed. It's so, it's so hard finding something new that's not gimmicky. If you know what I mean. I mean, the food world has 10 million new things a day, a minute practically. I but, know that um, that's something we 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 have to fight with. People are telling us we've had people that just saying, "Why are you being so gimmicky? This is nothing special." And then they'll call to apologize. Oh yeah. <laughs> Right, yeah. and and yeah, and and a side benefit of this is, of course, a total utilization of the product, and um, a, a happier life for, for a healthier life for the pigs themselves, which is a big issue in today's uh, food world, as per the, the new legislation in California about uh, the, the the birthing pens or whatever they're called, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, a lot of this stuff that that is the super super commodity industrial production standards in the U.S. I mean, a lot of these standards wouldn't even fly in Europe. Right. Exactly. True. 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 Well, I miss Spain. We haven't been for a while, so I'm I'm ready. <laughs> it's been great meeting you and talking to you. You have a great story and and. Um, uh, um, you just you really 
accumulated a great deal of knowledge <laughs> in a short period of time, right? Yeah, no, no, that is for sure. Thank you so much for, for having me. Thank you. Talk to you again soon, hopefully. All right, take care. Yes, thank you. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. I am so excited to be talking once again to Rosemary Barenbaum of the well, she's known for the cake Bible, but she's also, she's got cookware, she's written and a gazillion other books. And the current one is a real pleasure for just about everybody, including, Rose said, herself when she was writing it. It's the cookie Bible, and who does not love cookies? I started reading on your, where the name cookie comes from, because it occurred to me, where did cookies come from? Where did they start? I'm not entirely sure where cookies actually started, but I do know that in Holland, they're called little cakes, and I just learned how to pronounce them from a woman from Morocco who grew up in Holland, and it's called kakia. Oh, It's spelled okay. very differently from how it sounds. So Sounds that's a little the, rude. the Dutch. <laughs> well, yes, I thought of that too. <laughs> a little rude. <laughs> you, you know, um, I I was not at all surprised to find out that this book is amazing because um, and there there are a few cookbook writers authors and recipe developers that I trust absolutely, and you're at the top of the list. I'm always amazed at how thorough you are. You're just amazingly accurate and thorough. This is my 13th book. This is my 13th book, and I've had a lot of practice. But I do have (laughs) to tell you that there are sometimes little mistakes that are made, not necessarily by me, but by the, the process of publishing, and that one of them is the oatmeal, because... Even in what they call the galleys, which is the first thing that comes out, the bound yeah. galleys, the, the weight was correct at 90 grams. Nobody understands how it became out in the PDF to prove or into the <laughs> final hard copy. It became 52. You know, so yeah. most people, unfortunately, won't weigh, but I wish they would and weigh correctly because yeah. <laughs> make that change in your book. But otherwise, you know, we go through it with this fine-tooth comb. My husband, who was my assistant for 18 years before we got married, he and I proofed back and forth. So, yeah, I want to keep that reputation because I know how disappointing it is. My first cookie became one cookie because it was the recipe on the oatmeal, Quaker oatmeal box, uh-huh. and it all ran together. I remember I you were telling about that. Yeah. So, so, therefore, I don't want other people to have that experience. Well, now, but you, you have built into your website a way of, of getting um, notice of these and correcting them, right, these Thank errors. You. So much for pointing that out because I forgot to mention that yes, on realbakingthrows.com we have a column that says 
cookbook corrections or and enhancements because sometimes we found better ways to do things. Sometimes ingredients have changed. So I just posted actually uh, on Facebook and Instagram and on social media because pe- more people look at that. The major benefit of the blog is that you can do that. Right. No, 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 I mean, is, is Musk going to subscribe? Excuse me? Oh, no, you don't have to subscribe. It's free. (laughs) (laughs) No money involved here. (laughs) Nothing's free with Musk, that's for sure. What is Musk? Musk? Am I hearing correctly? How do you spell that? (laughs) Musk. You mean like as in Elon? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll trust that you guys understand (laughs) what just no. don't worry. If you go to my blog, our blog, I should say, because Woody and I has taken over, after 20 years he knows what my answers will be, and the rare time he doesn't, mm-hmm. yes. And you'll get all, all questions are answered. Yeah. We're moving on to 20 years in January for this show, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. 20 years really doesn't take as long as it sounds to get there, well, does it? I understand. And you know that this is next year is the 35th anniversary of the Cake Bible, and we're doing a complete revision, oh, new edition. Yeah, so Are you really? Yeah. You know, it's, it's easier. I studied fashion design at FIT many years ago, and I learned it's easier to start with a new garment than to alter one. Well, it's also true with the book. But this is a book that has changed people's lives, including mine. It started careers. I'm not about to start a new one. I'd rather alter than old one and add all the new discoveries and make all the tweaks. Oh, it's so different now. Yeah. So, but, you know, the thing is you have, you can tell with your writing. First of all, it's very lucid, so, you know, anybody can understand what you're saying. But um, you, you kind of think about all the angles and you have so much experience and with this that you, you come up and, and tell us things that, that I wouldn't even think to ask. And, and I didn't realize I didn't know. It, it, this is the kind of, I mean, is this just accumulated experience or what? You are the best interviewer. You understand, and a lot of people don't realize, that there are things that people don't know that they need to know. But when you spend your life thinking about it, and this is like the quartet in my four Bibles of pastry and pies, cakes, bread, and now cookies, I've come to understand about all the ingredients and all the things that can go wrong and all the things that people need to know. And I get rid of the extraneous, so I want to make sure people see the important things. Well, you do. <laughs> you do indeed. Mm-hmm. You know, you, tell us, tell our listeners how. Oh, I just opened this. This is the cutest photograph. I've got to mention the photographs too. Oh, really? Your lion's paw cookies are fabulous. <laughs> Aren't they? I developed that recipe a hundred years ago for Safari magazine for teenagers. Yes, you read that. Yeah, but the thing is, it was in my other book, but I never liked the way it tasted. I just had to make it sturdy enough to hold up the shape, and I took on the <laughs> challenge to make it also delicious to eat. So that's in the new book. Well, there are some they're just adorable. Thank you. There are some recipes that are my favorites from before, but I've tweaked all of them because, again, the cookie, but the Rose's Christmas Cookies was written about 32 years ago, oh, so geez. a lot has changed. Yeah, it's kind There's of so much. Uh, it has changed in terms of ingredients and techniques and equipment. Exactly. It's hard to keep up. Mm-hmm. Um, tell our listeners how you organized this book. 
Well, I divided it into different types of cookies, like the drop cookies, the rolled cookies, the meringue cookies. And also, the important thing in organizing was also how the recipe layout is, because it makes it easier to read when it's set up correctly. And I've always liked the charts for the ingredients. It's easy to see exactly what you need. But I've also put in the mise en place, which is French for putting in place, in other words, yes. advanced preparation, so that you don't get halfway through the recipe only to discover that you should have softened the butter or you should have processed the sugar exactly. or chopped the nuts, you know. <laughs> so that's basically what the thought that we gave to this, and it seems to work very easily for people. And what are your baking gems? What, explain what those are. Well, I always put in pearls or gems or something that I think I want to call people's attention to that they might miss just reading through the recipe or mm -hmm. reading through the front material that explains that, for example, there's a difference between bleached and unbleached flour, and unbleached will brown faster. There's also a way of making cookies brown faster when you need to using baking soda. They're all the little tips that hopefully meet people's eyes. And I've always, in all my books, I've put in a heart by those the gems or tips because they're so important. And they've always been changed to an asterisk or in the ice cream book, they were changed to a little ice cream scoop, which was really cute. But here they left it as hearts because when I signed the book, I signed it love and cookies. Cookies are love. And in fact, my grandmother called me Cookie as a little girl. I completely yeah, you read, thought about I, that until I wrote this. You know, it came yeah, I could see you being called Cookie. I mean, I could see that. <laughs> I bet. I'm, I'm, I hope you mean that in a good way. <laughs> I'm kidding. No, I mean, I, I, <laughs> uh, I so, am small, you know, but um, yeah. You know, this is the thing that people love about cookies, and maybe me too. They're not threatening. You know, I mean, you don't have to worry about taking a big piece of cake or pie. You have just one cookie, and sometimes you can cheat and take two. It's not necessarily cheating, but when you're trying not to eat a big piece of something, a cookie is a good compromise. Right, and and right. kids get a lot of fun out of making them too. I mean, it's something they can mm. they can play with, shape, uh, decide about, and still then eat and enjoy, which is yeah. Good. And also, there's the bar cookies, which you can make any size that you want. Right, yeah, right. that's a whole other chapter. Oh, literally. Oh, yeah. Let me get a word in anyways, girls. Okay. <laughs> My father always said that. I'm I'm. I'm wondering, is, is there a boundary between cookies and cakes and the, the other things you've written books about? Oh, yeah, that's a very good point because I once discovered that by adding boiling water to cocoa, you get double the flavor and you get a much better cake. So I thought, and brownies in the cookie category, why don't I do that with a brownie? And the brownie turned into a cake because other things have more moisture. Cookies are very low in moisture. Some don't even have water. So if I tried doing that with the brown, with a regular cookie with cocoa, you would end up getting a puddle. So that's mm -hmm. one of the biggest factors. And another boundary is sugar. Cookies need more sugar than cake. I mean, mm -hmm. a cookie is just about flour, butter, and sugar, but I still keep sugar to a minimum. Too much and it spreads too much, too little, and you don't have a chewy quality or as much sweetness as you need. But I'm very concerned about the flavor overtaking. And too much sugar and all you taste is sugar. You just want sugar to add enough to heighten all the other ingredients. Yeah, I, I hate when they spread. That's what really, <laughs> when you make cookies and they spread. So now don't yeah, cut well, back you know, on the sugar. Things, 
the two things and also other things that can help. I wouldn't suggest cutting back on my sugar in the cookies because I use the minimum. But what you can do is if you use unbleached flour all-purpose, and I'm talking about a national brand because it has that protein that will absorb liquid because there's liquid from eggs and from other elements, and even the, the butter has water in it. So it absorbs that, and it doesn't allow the cookies to spread as much. Um, another thing is to chill the cookies after they're shaped before putting them in the oven, say in the refrigerator for 30 minutes, and have the oven hot enough so that they'll set up before they get a chance to spread. Also, weigh the ingredients so that you have the right amount of sugar and and flour because a lot of people think that if they measure, that's just fine, and it is if they follow the instructions. But for flour, you could end up getting one and a half, one and three-quarter times the amount of flour that you wanted by scooping out the flour and then leveling it off. I always say to spoon it in lightly, and that way it will be very similar to weighing. Well, you know, the, you're, you're one of the the more liberal um, instructors in terms of the weighing process. Um, you actually make give it a rationale. I mean, <laughs> you give it a rationale. I mean, I actually wrote an article way to bake. You know, because oh, really? People sometimes need reasons to be persuaded to do something that they don't want to do. And our tradition in this country up until I put weights in the cake bible it was the first book to have weights and up until then people thought weighing is the way it makes me feel comfortable it's the way my mother taught me well my mother never taught me anything so it left me free <laughs> i don't mean i just mean about baking my mother was a dentist and even her mother who had you, you said that and an orthodontist no less <laughs> yeah <laughs> that may be why you don't use over sugar <laughs> You know, it may be only because when you're not used to having that much sugar, you find it overwhelming. So growing up without a lot of sugar, that changed my taste probably. I think sugar is an inborn thing, but the quantity that you want is not. That's a learned thing. Same with salt. I don't want salt or so much finishing fleur de sel on my cookies so that I get hit with a sharp taste of salt rather than it blending into the other ingredients and bringing them to life. Yeah, um, the, the, I don't have a, a preference for a lot of sugar. I mean, I get turned off by a lot of sugar, actually. Um, and so, how so do you I, feel about how do you feel about macaron than the French macaron? Because they're like predominantly sugar. They're, they're yeah, you know, I've I've never really. I love when I read it in your book in this book. You've never been crazy about macaron. Oh, <laughs> I never have. They're so pretty, so they're always a disappointment when you taste them. Except you have one recipe in here, the, what is it, the, the top of the line the macaron. It's, uh, it, it sounds very difficult to make, but it sure looks gorgeous. It is. But the thing is, it's worth it because it has lemon curd in the center and then it has a moat, I think you call a little barricade, of the best buttercream that has lemon in it. So that mitigates against all the sweetness because the virtue of the macaron is that it has the most wonderful texture. So I thought it was worth perfecting this one. It was actually originally a concept of Thomas Keller, but I used all of my components. Since I've already oh, there you worked go. Out I, was thinking, I was thinking of Thomas as you as you were speaking for a, for a different reason altogether. There, what was that? There, there, there is a businessmen's club in Pittsburgh called the Duquesne Club, very uh, elegant establishment, and the, the dining population is is very large because the members love it. But the thing that they love more than anything else is macarons, and people steal them. 
<laughs> yeah, but they're not macaron. They're macaroons. They're coconut. Oh, yeah. And, and they're, they're yeah, and, and they're sweet. And I wrote the cookbook um, with the chefs um, from, from from that uh, club, and they the the port the pastry chef deliberately left out some in, instructions and ingredients of the macaron the macaroons, so that they I got all kinds of complaints about people not being able oh. to duplicate them. I thought people didn't do that kind of thing anymore. And by the way, we were just in Pittsburgh for the first time for the International Association of Culinary Professionals right. several months ago. I fell in love with Pittsburgh. My mother had gone to dental school there, and she always talked about it, but I never realized how interesting and beautiful it is. Oh, it is. Yeah. It's, uh, no, no we, we actually, I guess people scorn Pittsburgh because it seems co kind of mm-hmm. nowhere but um it you have no idea how many cultural advantages because it always had um top number of corporations for its size and all the rich the uh magnates were would put their names on these art museums and symphonies mm-hmm. and that kind of thing so um yeah it's, it has a great market and we went up to the top on our last day and saw the rivers that incredible view I think people right. think of sure. Pittsburgh and the pits and the charcoal. I think that's your association. The way they used to think about New Jersey, where we now live on a mountaintop full-time, by the way, and it's near the Delaware Water Gap. Maybe sometimes it's good people don't know about the advantages of where you live because then they'll move there and it'll be crowded. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, the tech scene is bringing in a lot of people from California, so uh, that it's affecting the real estate market enormously. Because people are, they're used to paying that for rents, you know, and it mm-hmm. wasn't typically Pittsburgh. Now, by, by the way, and, it, and interestingly, for, for reasons that I never entirely understood, my step my stepfather Frank Davidson was in love with the Delaware Water Gap, which mm-hmm. you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. I can see it now. Because now the leaf. You go ahead. It's a geological phenomenon. Related to the melting of the ice after the Quaternary Ice Age, all that kind of stuff. But it's 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 a big thing with water going through it. It is, and you know what? The silver lining of losing the leaves in the fall is that I can see it once again from my office window. Ah, There you go. I can't see the water because I'm too far away. But going through it, you know, when you see those geological formations of how the striations and going at an angle from the ice age as it melted. It never fails to excite me. It's kind of like the Golden Gate Bridge. You never get tired of looking at some national things like that. Right. Now, you you have all these different techniques. Um, I don't know why I never actually in my head put them all together as an organizational tool, but but you've done that. Uh, So you have um, rolled by hand, dropped or piped, shaped by hand, rolled and cut, holiday cookies, bar and cake cookies, meringues and candies, and then your extra specials. Um, it's, it, it's so logical that people can figure out what they're wanting to tackle before they even get into the individual recipes. I think it works very, very well as an organizational tool for something as broad a field as, as cookies. Oh, I'd like um, to replay that again and again. I just love what you said. I have to confess that the best compliment that I ever got was from my editor at Food Arts Magazine. It's no longer in existence. He said I was the most logical person he'd ever met, and I never thought of it. And now I have a stepdaughter who's a philosophy specialist in logic, 
a professor in Minnesota, and I thought, I haven't told her that yet because I'm too shy about it because I'm not a ah. philosopher. But the thing is that I didn't have to think about doing it that way. It just came to me. It's the way in which I look at things. So I'm lucky to have that gift because there are many gifts I don't have, but that's one I happen to have. Yeah, so but, really but you can see that. Things. This is like part of why you're so successful with it. It, it is natural and it is experienced. And, and it, you communicate it perfectly. I just think it's a wonderful book. Um, Thank you. That means the world to me. Oh, well. Um, a, a story here. <laughs> you have, um, I, can, I opened it, now I lost it again. It was um, Mexican wedding cookies. Do you have that? Oh, your I, head? Can turn, I can turn to it. <laughs> well, I'm, I just I had a question about it. Is when. We were in Los Angeles once. I fell in love with a, a Mexican bakery. And they had um, these, they were supposedly Mexican wedding cookies. And I just was so in love with them. And I mean, as far as I can tell, they were, um, they had cinnamon and sugar. I mean, they were like a sugar cookie with cinnamon. But mm-hmm. they were shaped such that I always called them alligator cookies. And, and yeah, and I loved them so much. Um, and I had a, a colleague of, of Peter's air freight them to me, especially when I was pregnant. <laughs> oh, amazing! That's a good example. Yeah, leads me to. But a... I, I've never encountered it anyplace else. It, these are not quite like what I remember. But Wait, do you know anything where, about this? Where, where were you again? In where Los, Los Angeles. Okay, because that's so interesting that I have a recipe, I think, in the pastry Bible for alligator cake, and I bet it was the same bakery. Could be. And it was just like an alligator. It used nuts, to, I think, to make the scales. I don't know how you turn that into a cookie, but the thing about Mexican wedding cakes, they're like little explosions you know, they, with all the powdered sugar and the tenderness, and they, they don't just exist as Mexican. They're also Austrian and Greek, the cornbiatas. Oh, yeah, that's the one that reminded me the most of them, the Greek one, yes. Mm. Um, They freeze very well, too. I don't think I've ever had enough left to freeze. I didn't find that. <laughs> Did I say they freeze? <laughs> I always, you know, when I started writing the cake Bible, I would take every cake I ever did and see how long it could last at room temperature, refrigerator, and freezer. And, of course, people's temp- freezers are different temperatures. You know, yeah. below zero, things can last a lot longer. But I thought it would be really helpful to know because the cake is big. With cookies, most of them keep so well at room temperature if they're airtight. You know, as long as you don't store the crispy ones with the moist ones because then they exchange characteristics, you know. Uh-huh. But otherwise... And also, they don't usually last very long because people love them so much and they keep them in their hand in the cookie jar. You know, you have your favorites. Tell us about what some of your favorite recipes in here are. Well, I can do two categories. One is chocolate and the other is not chocolate. My favorite <laughs> chocolate one is, and I'm not saying I would prefer one to the other because they're two separate worlds. They're both so wonderful. But the chocolate one that I love the most is the truffle cookie where a truffle is baked into a chocolate cookie. And the non-chocolate one is the lemon butter bars that I now make with cranberry. And I'll never go back oh, nice. to plain lemon again because it's a marriage made in heaven. You know, and the thing is that I've always loved lemon butter bars and I perfected it. Originally that recipe had cornstarch in the lemon part and I thought, why not use lemon curd and use all yolk? 
and you get the maximum flavor and no starchiness. And then I've also worked hard to perfect my shortbread, which is the base. And with a new element, you just cook the dried cranberries in a little bit of liquid. And the dried cranberries are sweetened, so it's not totally tart. You know, but the tartness of the cranberry and the tartness of the lemon blend so well with the buttery crispness of the shortbread that I'm now salivating, wishing I had one. <laughs> Those are just two of my favorite. My husband contributed the third, and that's a spice cookie that rides the cusp between sweet and savory because you can serve them with goat cheese or you can eat them plain. Oh, nice. And are you ready for this one, Peter, if you like the pronunciation of cookie in Dutch? These are called pepper cockers. Yeah. And what it, yeah. <laughs> and what it means... <laughs> it's pepper cookies. <laughs> it's a Scandinavian cookie. He came from Minnesota, and his Tai Chi Sifu, his mother, made this recipe, and he had a beg for it. I think you probably read about this one, Anne. Uh, he had a beg for it for years, and it's just the way she gave it to us, but three times the length and description, because we like to give the technique <laughs> details. But, oh, they're just addictive. And when his daughter actually had some in Minnesota in her desk drawer, forgetting about them for three years, they were so good because they had so much spice and ginger that's a preservative, but none of the nasty, I consider clove a nasty spice. I mean, I like a little of it, a touch of it's great, but too much, and it's just, ew. Too much, yeah. So, yeah, but this pepper cockers are worth the effort. They're just easy to make, but you have to shape them. We use the tube from, usually from paper towels, and then we can stand them up in the freezer, sliced really thin, and it's just one after, it's like potato chips. You just go one after the other after the other. <laughs> <laughs> Want more? <laughs> well, I, I, I love your, um, the, the titles of your cookies. I mean, like, where did you get the, the, the Anna Custard cuddle cookies? Cuddle cookies are perfect. <laughs> I love the word cuddle, and they reminded me of that. They're very comforting. You know, they're not crispy, they're more soft and approachable. And I, I love naming things. You know, one of, one of my favorite names is the Lemon Lumpies. Somebody actually wrote to me saying, why would you give such an ugly name to such a delicious cookie? And I said, it's not <laughs> ugly to me. It's lumpy can be good. Not every cookie has to be pristine, you know, <laughs> and, uh, perfectly shaped. In fact, nobody's going to mind if it isn't, as long as it tastes good and has a good texture. Here's, here's, a, here's an unusual question for you. Have, have you ever met Mr. Walker? You know, all your questions are unusual, I have to say. Well, you know, I haven't met him. And, you know, I might have actually at one of the, the specialty food trade shows, but my dearest friend in San Francisco actually met him in Scotland, and he contributed a huge amount of shortbread to her Toys for Tots festival every year that they give to charity. So have you met him? Yeah, we, t- we talked to him at one of the specialty food conferences. Oh, there yeah. you are. And she said he's totally charming. The interesting thing mm-hmm. he told us, he told us that the company is prospering and he was going to build another factory in his hometown mm-hmm. to be able to make more Walker shortbread. Oh, my, my friend told me the same thing. And, you know, his yeah. cookies, they're not like commercial. I mean, they taste as pure as if it were homemade. Yeah, how does he do that? I don't understand how he does that. I think you can get away with that for cookies, especially because they have a lot of butter, which is kind of a preservative. But you can do it with cookies without having to add things like ice cream will become crystallized if you don't add some kind of emulsifier. You always taste it, and it has a gummy quality. Yeah, 
Mm-hmm. And I've actually achieved a cookie that, I mean, an ice cream <laughs> that can last for two weeks in the freezer because it doesn't even use an ice cream machine. It uses Italian meringue. And that's what keeps it from crystallizing. So okay, it's easy. Know. It's delicious. It's the lemon, it's the lemon ginger cookie. Oh, ice cream. See, I keep talking about cookies because... The cookie book just came out, but the ice cream book came out at the beginning of COVID, and nobody knows about it because it never got any attention. Aww. So what I've been doing when I tour is I talk about ice cream and cookies, and I demonstrate both of them. But cookies, yeah, now, um, now that when I say cookie, I often say cake because we're working on the 35th revision right. of the Bible. So, yeah, so it's like so many subjects all that are the same family, but each one's so very different that they deserve its own, their own book. You know, I can't get over your brandy schnapps or snaps, brandy snaps. Oh, they yeah. they look like cannoli almost. Are they as hard to make? Well, I think that they're worth, even if they're slightly harder, they're worth it because they're so much better, in my opinion, than the standard, much heavier textured cannoli. Yeah. I don't think they're hard. With my instructions, trust me, they, they really aren't because I worked that out carefully. But you know what else I love, speaking of brandy, are the brandy balls, butter balls, bourbon butter. Oh, that's bourbon, actually, not Bourbon brandy. balls. Now, yeah. my mother used to make those. And uh, the best thing was because she made them for parties, they're no bake. Exactly. And they keep. And they yeah. ship. Oh, what, that reminds me of something. I... I had one disappointment is you had um, no recipe in here for a Sicilian uh, fig cookie called a cucciadate. You know, I've never heard of that one. And well, I have a lot of Sicilian friends. I'm really surprised. What is well, the spelling varies according to where in Sicily, but um, a, a friend of mine who's a PBS chef local here um, he's Sicilian, and um, a couple of other of us are Sicilian in, in heritage, and um, and we decided we would do a cucciadata program on his on um, PBS, making these fig cookies that they last forever. And well, anyhow, we couldn't ultimately decide. I had all my family recipes. Every one of them was different. None of them was specific enough to drive you insane. It would call for something like a jar of grape jelly, (laughs) (laughs) that kind of thing. Uh, But the the real uh, thing that finally squelched the the whole program was when we finally agreed on a recipe that we all kind of would be familiar with, Mm. It takes two days to make them <laughs> with all the refrigerating and grinding mm. and setting aside and so forth. But I was hoping to find a definitive um, recipe for Cuchidata in your book. And I love the name of it, too. You know, there yeah. is a recipe, the Syrian, I believe they're fig filling, that you really should check and compare because... They're incredible cookies. They're so tender and delicious, and yet the dough doesn't fall apart when you work with it, which is kind of almost a contradiction. And then the filling, you have to use the best quality fig. But I'm trying to find it in the book, and I can't spell Syrian. <laughs> so how is that possible? Isn't it S-Y? Maybe it's not in the index. There's a very good possibility. I, I couldn't find fig in the index, though. I mean, there's, we always, if we didn't want to say cuchidata, we said fig cookies. But um, oh. they they last forever in, in a cookie tin, not even refrigerated, just in a cool place. 
Well, well steak is a wonderful ingredient. Yeah. They last forever, unless unless they were the ones given to Corny, Cornelius. Yeah. <laughs> Some people <laughs> like them too much. You That's not Cornelius O'Donnell. Pay the price. <laughs> no, different one. I'm still looking for those Syrian. They're shaped by hand, and they're from my actually my protege who has a, a Syrian background. A lot really? of cookies are cross-cultural boundaries, you know. So you think it's unique to one place, and actually the ingredient grows in that same area. Uh-huh. So it's well, not I mean, no. it's just the, the different. The recipes were so diverse. Not, not just in quantities, but even in ingredients. And I remember the main liquid ingredient was a bottle of, not, no size specified, of course, a bottle of port wine. Where? Oh, that was in that? In that, hmm? I, can't, I can't pronounce the name of those cookies. A bottle of port wine? Yeah, Kuchidata. I don't know. C-U-D-A-T-E. Um, it's not dates, it's it's, it's figs, it's not dates, right? It's figs, yeah, figs, Mm. and raisins, and nuts, everything, and it's just wonderful. And and this dough, you could work with it for hours, and it held up, and they baked it, and then you used a very light um, icing, like just uh, powdered sugar and water kind of glaze on it. And they're just really wonderful, and I think pretty healthy. But um, I had another problem is that all the recipes were, you know, old relatives' recipes, and I never could get them if I cut the recipe down. um, I couldn't Mm -hmm. get the same result, so I ended up making 12 dozen of them all the time. (laughs) (laughs) The thing they keep. (laughs) Exactly. Well, we gave them away a lot of them. Well, I think this book is wonderful, and um, here's the, the one... The macaron I was talking about is the crown jewel macaron. Yes, I named and it. And I would love to have that, but I can't even imagine being able to make it. So, Well, that was the most challenging. I was a little bit afraid of macaron because I tried making it in the past and it didn't work out well. And the reason is that when I studied at Lenotre in Paris, they told me that they keep their egg whites at room temperature for weeks, that they don't go, ever go bad. So I tried that with, because I thought it, in a lot of cases, I don't keep it that long, but with a macaron, you can't keep it as long, and you have to have it at least aged three days, you know, otherwise it won't work well. And then, if you're not adverse to piping, to using a piping bag, they're really pretty easy to do. Uh-huh. So, I, re- I, re- I really recommend, I mean, if you have time to do it, because it, then you also have to make the buttercream and the lemon curd and all that. But that's why it's so wonderful, especially for the holidays when you have family and they come and help you. Yeah, well, way, I'm planning on, on uh, taking this book to Philadelphia with me for Thanksgiving so that uh, my 15-year-old granddaughter and I can make cookies. <laughs> that is the best tradition. I had always wished I had a grandmother who would make cookies with me. Yeah. But she's not a cookie maker. So well, I, I'm Rose, going to find that recipe for you for the Syrian ones. I know they didn't leave it out because I saw it the other day. You know, sometimes recipes are cut. <laughs> they always make the books too big. And I yeah, right. They always take out recipes you don't want to lose. I know. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll check again for it. Um, in the meantime, much success with this book. And I can't wait, actually, to have a, a, a new edition of the uh, Cake Bible. That's going to be great. Oh, good. Thank you so, so much. 
Yeah, and so listeners, again, it's, it's the queen of cookies and cakes and just about everything, Rose Levy Bum, and it's called The Cookie Bible and Grab It, and it's going to be a family activity adventure as well with all the different cookies in it. Let me know if you find out anything about Cochidate, Rose. <laughs> and by the way, they're on page 127. They're date night cookies. Oh, no, that's okay. not it. All right, I, too many recipes, too little time. I'll get it for you. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and Adam, dear, you're the best. Okay. Oh, dear. Thank you, dear. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.